Good afternoon, my name is Aaron Bastani and you're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. Thanks for joining us. I'm joined in the studio today by sometime co-host and editor of Navarra Media, James Butler, at Pierce Penless. Hi, James. Hi. And joining us today is David Harvey. David is the Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Geography at the Graduate Centre of the City University of New York, a leading social theorist of international standing. He received his PhD in Geography from the University of Cambridge in 1961 and widely influential, he is among the top 20 most cited authors in the humanities. Most recently, he has written 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism. That is forthcoming with Profile Books, and it's that book which we will, in part at least, uh, form today's discussion. David, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Such a eminent, you know, that kind of, uh, that encomium, you know, that kind of, that could have gone on for 10 minutes, such as David's standing and not only his subjects, but the humanities more generally. David, I'm going to start with this question. Why did you write this particular book, uh, this 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism, and how does it differ from your previous work? Because it strikes me that it's potentially a response to a, a particular political situation and what might be perceived as certain shortcomings. Well, two things, really. Uh, first, uh, we went through the crisis of 2007-2008, which uh, began in uh, housing markets in certain parts of the United States and then spread uh, to the financial institutions and then went global uh, with the bankruptcy of uh, Lehman Brothers. And so there was a lot of explaining to do as to where that crisis came from, and uh, it took a little while for people to start to figure out what that was all about. But what was also interesting was that there was a sort of recovery from the crisis for certain segments of the population. The rich came out of it uh, by 2009. Corporate capital came out of it around, around the same time. So officially, if you like, the crisis was declared over in the summer of 2009. But we're sitting around here now in 2014, and for many people around the world, this is still a crisis situation because of the unemployment, uh, because of the austerity politics uh, and and the like. So it seemed to me really important to sort of sit down and say, what is capitalism really about? Why is it that capital accumulation, which we're told is very efficient and and the like, why does it create these messes every now and again? Uh, Not simply in financial institutions like actually happened in 2007, 2008, but why did we then get these long, prolonged kind of depression conditions? Uh, And out of that comes the question of, uh, is this really an adequate system to support human life in an adequate way? Uh, do we have to start thinking about alternatives? And so for that reason, I thought I'd sit down and sort of talk about, well, what's wrong with the engine of, of capitalism uh, and uh, what kinds of uh, possibilities exist when we start to think about trying to replace it? Yeah, I mean, so when I was reading the book, one of the things that, that struck me is, is how interesting the structure of it is because you move through the foundational contradictions of capital in a way that follow, <coughs> follows sort of Marx's trajectory in, in volumes one and two of capital from money and social labor through to circulation, production, realization, then through uh, the moving contradictions, uh, features which uh, I, I guess are contingent and mutable uh, in, in any sort of historical epoch. Um, through to three sort of urgent and dangerous contradictions and some uh, political possibilities, which, which for me are, are the real summit of the book. Uh, it, I mean, in essence, it seems, it seems to me that you're, you're making an argument for an anti-capitalist politics um, that, that doesn't depend on a kind of historical reenactment or nostalgia, um, but emerges from, from a sort of careful analysis of how, 
how capitalism is operating now. So, I, I mean, I guess maybe one of the, the, the places to start with, with the content of the book is, is what you're doing in, in, in those first few chapters. Because, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me is that you do draw on a relatively heterodox sort of series a series of thinkers beyond Marx, uh, in a way that, that often sort of eminent Marxists won't do. They, they want to stick very very clearly to a sort of scriptural canon. I mean, you, you cite Lefebvre, Gortz, Keynes, Gessel, Polanyi, and Fanon, uh, all of, all of which are sort of figures who, who hover around sort of Marxist discourse. But but you really bring them into the fabric of the book, uh, and so um, maybe you could talk a little about how, how your analysis is rooted in in sort of Marx, but also is attempting to move beyond it uh, or, or outline it in, in in a new way. Well, one of the things that always uh, well increasingly uh, impressed me about my reading of Marx was uh, how commonsensical. So, so much of it was, uh, and uh, how the common sense of it uh, kind of uh, would strike anybody thinking about the situation. So it doesn't surprise me at all that many people, when they start to look at a situation, actually come up with explanations which are very close to those which Marx himself uh, laid out. And, and, and in a way, I felt uh, it, it strengthened the argument I was making to say this is not just simply Marx talking here. Uh, elements of what he's talking about can be found in Keynes. Elements of it can be found in, in Polanyi and so on. And many uh, figures who are not considered Marxists actually come up with the same kind of common sense uh, way of understanding what capitalism is about. And I, I, I really thought that uh, it would be a good I- good idea to try to demonstrate uh, that. Uh, so the concepts that I'm, I'm drawing upon are, are not, uh, uh, not unique uh, at all. And there's a lot of writing right now, and it's very interesting to me, people who've never read Marx and don't realize that actually they're echoing Marx, particularly on questions like technological change and technological mm. dynamism and the like. We've got a series of people who are grappling with the realities of what's happening and and then come up with a new formulation. And one of the things I end up saying is, well, if you've read Marx in the Grundrisse, you would know that he said this back in 1857. Um, so it's, uh, it, 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 it was a fun thing to do from that, from that perspective, to, to, to play a few games like, like, uh, like that. I mean, this is, this is a really funny point. We've said it so many times on this show before. I mean, we've picked apart, you, know, you name them, right? Thinkers in the mainstream media, Isabella Kaminska at the FT, Will Hutton at The Guardian, um, you know, uh, this guy is Thomas Piketty. Piketty, yeah. Piketty. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. you know, these people, like you say, it would just take a cursory reading of of, of the Grundrisse, uh, you know, Capital Volume One, to, you know, with regards to technology, right? I mean, specifically the Grundrisse, page six hundred one, my favourite page. <laughs> no, it would just take a very cursory reading of this, and they sort of, you know, they think they're sort of reinventing the wheel. You know, you now get whole bumper editions of the Economist on, right. like, you know, technological change and automation and uh, under an unemployment. Yes. So why are these people? Look, these people have been writing for decades. They're highly educated. They are, you know, sometimes in their fifties, their sixties, very learned, well-read people. Uh, why? Why? Why is Marx? Why is the Gunnarsson? Why is Capital not figuring in their intellectual? Well, there's, there's, there's been a taboo for a long time about reading reading Marx, and if you actually cite Marx favorably more than, I mean, this was what happened to me when I started off. I reading Marx, I, I didn't act, I didn't consider myself a Marxist or anything. I just thought, well, this is common sense. I'll use it, and and and, and I liked it. But by the time I'd cited Marx three times in a favorable light, people started to refer to me as a Marxist. Mm. And as soon as you get referred to as a Marxist, you're somehow 
somehow or other some you know you got horns or or something on you and and you're pushed into the corner and nobody wants to listen to you and I always remember being in a seminar in the seminar at University of Johns Hopkins and I just went into somebody else's seminar and, I, and he was talking about Marx and I said, I think you've got it wrong, I think it's this way. And he said to me, you've been reading the wrong kind of literature, if you know it's good for your career, you'll stop reading that mm. kind of stuff. And, and so th there's always been this big taboo uh, against, against, uh, against him. And you know, for a while there I tried to say I'm not a, a, a Marxist. Uh, but I, I got I got fed up uh, doing that after a while. I said, well, if that's what they're going to call me, that's what they're going to call me. Do you think because you were a geographer rather than, say, an economist or a political scientist, you were better insulated from the, some of those? Say, if you'd been an economist and you said, hey, actually, have a look at this in the Grundrisse, you would have been completely sort of ostracised by the academy, whereas maybe with geography, that was less the case? I think that's that's right. There's, there was less case. But the other thing was, of course... The, the the marks I was interested in was somebody who helped me explain uh, things like what was going on in housing markets, mm. uh, what was going on in urbanisation, what was going on in social inequality in cities and things like that. So I could write about those issues from a Marxist perspective and make, make some sort of sense to people about, about the, the nature of the issues. And on that point, I would also you know, remind you that the crisis of 2007, 2008 began in housing markets. And so the whole analysis of what goes on in housing uh, was very crucial to me from the very, very beginning. I mean, we've, we've spoken on, on this show before um, a great deal about the sort of bizarrely stimulated housing market, particularly in the UK, particularly in London. Um, and, and so I mean, it's one of those places where, where sort of that Marxist framework makes, you know, it, it seems to me it's the, the most obvious and common sense explanation, I mean, as, as you're saying. Um, and particularly when it comes to housing, and, and particularly that that form of uh, you know the, the racialized or uh, you know, ethnic divisions within housing, the class divisions within housing, um, this kind of stuff play, plays into to some of the stuff that uh, that struck me about the book, which is that that you make very clear that that um, you're talking about capital, but also capitalism, uh, right? And and you draw that distinction. Um, quite neatly, I think, in the book, uh, and talk particularly about the, the complications beyond you know, the simple uh, uh, labour-capital relation, uh, you know, the, the ways in which it's, it's entangled. I wonder, you know, is this or has this been sort of a signal problem for, for the kind of standard workers' movement and, and, and what we need to do to, to go beyond that or, or really understand the ways in which that relation is embedded in other things? Uh, well, one one of the things that uh, came out of my reading of uh, volumes one and two of Capital was that you have to think about not only the production side of things, but what Marx calls the realization, the marketing of uh, things. And it's the unity between production and consumption that is really, uh, really significant. Now, the tendency in Marx's theorist is just to talk about production as if the consumption side doesn't really matter or it's secondary or it's uh, insignificant. Uh, I've always held that they're both uh, connected to each other. And, of course, when you're looking at a city, you're looking at the consumption that's going on and you see that, uh, you know, maybe there's a big fight in production and people get higher wages and uh, you always think, OK, they're going to be better off. But then when they go home and they find they're facing higher rents, they lose it all uh, to the landlord. Mm. So, the, if you like, the bourgeoisie, if I dare use that phrase on this, this <laughs> program, recaptures a lot of the value that 
it might have surrendered in production by actually jacking up prices. This is very important, by the way, in teaching because most people confront on a daily basis uh, the way in which they're being actually hurt by rising rents and property prices, uh, by uh, hidden charges on your credit card, by charges on the phone and all this kind of stuff. So what's going on in the side of, on the side of consumption is just as important. And, and this is a theoretical point that uh, I've taken all along. And I think, however, the Marxist left has generally isolated itself by saying, well, it's all about production, it's all about production, it's all about production. Since we're talking about, you know, this book, we're talking about the crisis, uh, it seems to me that you, you've sort of had a, a, you've always been obviously a very successful academic, like I said, you're in the top 20 most cited scholars in the humanities. But since the crisis, since 2008, obviously your thinking has more traction than ever. Um, really concrete uh, interpretations of Marx are as politically vital and imperative as ever. Yeah. I came to see you speak at the LSC in 2010 early 2010, spring of 2010. And at the time I was, uh, I was interning at a think tank, sort of third way think tank called Demos. You know, and I rushed out of the door and I said, where, where are you going? I said, I'm going to see David Harvey. You know, and uh, they said, you know, well, who's he? Well, this, you know, this guy's a moron, right? Of course he doesn't know who David Harvey is. And I said, he's a, he's a Marxist. <laughs> and um, this guy who actually, by the way, was a sort of descendant of uh, Earl Grey, um, was sort of, I thought it was preposterous, a Marxist, you know, it was ridiculous. And I went to the LSE, maybe you remember it, it was absolutely packed, and I'm told last night that actually it was even you know, more packed. Um, so that sort of, that rebirth, that reflourishing of these ideas, an increasingly kind of, um, there's, a, there's clearly an increased disposition within the general public with regards to these ideas. Was it Stephanie Flanders did a documentary on Keynes, Marx and Hayek? I think Marx got the highest viewing figures. Mm. Nobody's talking about that, you know. Um, there's clearly a massive thirst for these ideas. What role do you see for yourself within that? Because uh, for many, the first kind of engagement they have with a really smart, incisive analysis of Marx is your video lectures. That was certainly the case for me in '09, actually. So where do you see yourself? And by extension of that, what, what do you see as, as the role, since we talked about the sort of incumbent institutional old left, what do you see as the role for the academy in general as well? I think uh, after the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union, uh, uh, I was frequently confronted with the idea of what was called the death of Marxism. <clears throat> and it was very, I mean, I could only respond, I was still alive and, 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 and that's all I could do. <laughs> But by and large, it was uh, highly uh, discredited. Uh, and uh, so one of the things that I thought at the time was, uh, and this maybe came with increasing security of my academic position, and uh, was that uh, instead of making Marx more complicated than he already is, that I would have a bit of a project, which uh, I would call the Marx Project, which was to try to create a body of information which would make Marx more accessible. So that partly led into the the video lectures. I had been teaching Marx's Capital for a long time. Uh, read it, led into the video lectures and then the written versions of those and then a series of books coming out from the New Imperialism, the Neoliberalism book, Enigma book, Rebel Cities and now this book where I try to, to, to actually make arguments which are not, not simplistic I hope but, but are simple enough that people can grasp them and say yes there's a good, you know, 
get the common sense out of Marx, get it on the table, get people to see uh, how commonsensical so much of this is and how profoundly insightful uh, it can it can also be. So I've, I've taken on that, that role really over the last uh, 10 years or so. And fortunately for me, the, the crisis of 2007, 2008 also came along where people started to look around and say, well, maybe, you know, we should have uh, a think. But I got very annoyed, of course, by all of these kind of commentaries which exist in the press to say, well, Marx had a theory of crisis, and then they just run off and don't ask what it is. So I've been trying to, if you like, fill that gap. Uh, and I think that... Uh, I've been very lucky that uh, I had some good help from students and others who I think have been part of this project, particularly developing a website which was pretty sophisticated. So I, I've you know, dedicated myself to that and, and uh, it seems to be working uh, you know, quite well. And what, what do you see as the role for the Academy in general? Well, the Academy should be, do much more uh, along these lines in my view. Uh, in fact, we have a situation right now where really uh, there should be a massive kind of attempt within the academy to rethink uh, how capital is working. But I really don't see that happening. I don't see a discipline like economics by and large uh, saying they need to do anything different. Marx has a wonderful uh, line about that, by the way, who kind of says, you know, when, when there's a crisis, cap, you know, the, the apologists for capitalism, the economists typically say, this would not happen if capital would only perform as, it, as I define it should perform in the textbooks. And we're getting a lot of that kind of response. If capital only, only, only did as we think it should do, then we wouldn't have this problem. And it's, so it's capital's fault, not their fault, that mm. they've got the interpretation wrong. So it's uh, our, our, our task, uh, I think, is, is, to, is to question and interrogate. But unfortunately, a lot of academia now is bureaucratized and corporatized and neoliberalized, if you want to call it that. And uh, there is not uh, that much, as much ferment in academia as I would have hoped to see. Yeah, I wanted to talk, um, I guess, a bit about, I, 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 we mentioned earlier that this new uh, Piketty book. Um, much, so much fun fair, right? I mean, is, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, you know, having sort of uh, speed read it. Like, there's a lot of data in there. Some of that, you know, will be useful, I'm sure. I mean, the the politics that emerges from it is this sort of weak nostalgia for, for social democracies. It's a very, very strange book. But, but one of the things that, 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 that was interesting about it for me was that it really struck a chord with the, the Keynes of the end of, of the general theory, where he talks about the euthanasia of the renters. Now, Keynes and I would mean something very different about euthanizing renters, but, you know, um, there, there, is this, there is this thing that, that I think is interesting in Piketty, and it's observable, which is rather than the euthanasia of the renters, the, the triumph of the renters in, in a very real sense. And this is a theme that crops up through the book. Uh, and, I, you know, it's, I think it's one of those moments where, where you, you know, when you look at this stuff and think, how can this be dealt with? I mean, it, it poses a very concrete political problem in terms of right. simply the ability to, to do very basic things like house or feed oneself. Uh, and, and this problem it, it strikes me as not one uh, just of personal agency, but it's one of you know, a, a real sort of 
you know, collapse of, of any kind of movement, any kind of pressure that can be put on institutions, bourgeois institutions, if you if you want to put it that way, uh, to, to deal with this stuff. Because you know, I mean, the the thing that's striking about Piketty's book is, of course, that he he does demonstrate, and I think reasonably clearly, that we're now uh, you know a return to that kind of concentration of, the, of wealth that we saw at the end of the nineteenth century. So you know, that, to me, is, is something that's really striking about yes. the current situation. Of course, the interesting thing to me is is that if you read Volume One of Capital, uh, you would come to the following conclusion that the closer you you get to perfectly functioning competitive markets in the classical Adam Smith vein, uh, the greater the inequalities of wealth. Mm. And to the degree that uh, you know the general ethos of how capitalism is working has switched back since the 1970s into that competitive, uh, capitalistic, uh, market-driven model. So income inequalities have spiraled, uh, uh, which is entirely predictable given what Volume 1 specifies. Uh, and then uh, it takes Piketty, you know, a lot of data and all this kind of stuff, uh, everything to kind of say, well, uh, this, is, uh, this is what's happened. But at the same time, he kind of makes some peculiar commentaries about Marx to make sure that nobody is going to think he's a Marxist mm. or anything. So he actually gets Marx quite wrong, yeah. uh, which is fascinating to me <laughs> that he obviously hadn't read Marx very carefully and didn't understand what Marx was, 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 was doing. So he kind of said, well, Marx got it all wrong for this and this reason. Uh, and, then, and then shows that actually, in terms of the data, that Marx was right. Uh, <laughs> But of course, he can't. Strange book. Strange book. (laughs) And now, of course, what we have a situation as it's being viewed by, you know, as the great new insight into the world, you know, and you kind of say, well, if you just read volume one of Capital, you would know this is going to happen and you would have seen it's been happening over the last 20 years. We are, why, why, why are we going, having to go through this kind of path to get to this you know, obvious conclusion? What, what explains the sort of poverty of imagination for sort of neoclassical economics for the powerful? Because the last time there was a crisis this big, they had Keynes, right? I mean, they had real sort of strong intellectual yes. heavyweights to deal with this stuff. Now, like I, said, I mean, it is laughable, right? I mean, you know, so what, why is that the case? Why have they come up against not just the barriers of their own system, but seemingly also supreme limits with regards to intellectuals capable of seeing beyond it? Well, I go back to this formulation about production and realization of, uh, uh, of, of capital. If you analyze capitalism from the standpoint of production, that's what happens in volume one of capital. If you analyze it from the standpoint of realization, that's what you have in volume two of capital. Uh, volume one of capital says, well, the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. Uh, but volume one of capital assumes there's no problem in the market. But volume two of capital says, well, if the poor are getting poorer, where's the market? And the result of that is you get another kind of crisis, which is a crisis because there's not a market to to sell your, your product. Now, in the 1930s, in effect, that was the problem. And so Keynes came along and says, jack up the market. We'll do, a, if you like, a demand-side analysis. So we're going to jack up demand. The state comes in, pushes demand uh, directly or indirectly. Uh, for example, in the United States, through suburbanization uh, and house building and all those kinds of things. So we, that's what we do. And, and it's pretty successful. But what Marx suggests is that if you're successful in that dimension, then what happens is that you you have a real problem of producing 
the surplus and the, in, in production. So at the end of the 1960s, the working class is, is relatively powerful. It's beginning to extract kind of... Then it's got, you've got political parties which are, you know, social democratic and in Europe they're communist and, 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 and the like. So you're getting into trouble on the production side. So you then get a revolution in the 1970s that said enough of this demand management, we're now going to go to supply management and the supply we're going to take care of is the wage rate and we're going to depress the wage rate. And so since the 1970s, the share of wages and national income uh, in the OECD countries has been progressively diminishing. And you're doing, been doing very well from the standpoint of, uh, uh, of production. But then you start to have demand problems. And, for instance, this is where the housing market comes in. Uh, you've, you've got to the bottom of the housing market. You're building houses. Where's, where's the demand going to come from? So you start to say, all right, we'll give people credit even though they're not creditworthy, and so you get the subprime kind of credit boom and so on, which is jacking up the market artificially by the credit system. And so then you get the explosion uh, of that in 2007, 2008. Now, what this suggests is that in any situation, you either go for a demand-side analysis or you go for a, a production-side analysis. Right now, uh, the austerity people uh, throughout uh, Europe and much North America are really saying we've got to keep the supply-side analysis going. And, of course, that's beneficial to the very rich because that supplies much more wealth to the, to, to the very rich, as Marx uh, predicted. But you've still then got a demand problem. But the other part of the world, China, for example, is doing the demand side. And they're building cities like crazy, and they're doing what the United States did after mm. World War II through suburbanization. They're, they're actually building new infrastructures, high-speed railways, uh, you know, uh, automobile, you know, interstate highway system kind of things, and, and new cities, which are uh, a tremendous building boom. And the result is that China, of course, is, is generating a huge demand for raw materials. So a country like Australia has been doing very well because it supplies all the raw materials. Chile does very well because the demand for copper. Uh, and you end up with a, with a, a kind of a, a boom in those countries, which are, which are, if you like, in the China circle. So you've got a demand-side uh, solution, which is essentially based in China and in other countries like Turkey and some of the emerging economies. And then you have a, a supply-side answer, which is austerity and Europe. And there's only those two answers. And right now, the economics profession is divided between do we go this way or that. So the, some people are moving back to the Keynesian view and some people kind of keep in deepening the monetary view. Is there a third view potentially that which might constitute the one after the one we have at the moment for elites and for centre-right parties? And I'm thinking here in the UK, which is to an extent imitating what you might call Keynesianism with Chinese characteristics, right? Yeah. Which is that <coughs> actually we're going to really stimulate demand, but not on consumer consumption and consumer spending, we're going to stimulate through massive infrastructure projects. Yeah. And already that seems to be the kind of vocabulary of people like George Osborne talking about Crossrail 2, talking about all these, you know, you walk around London, some of these new infrastructure projects are absolutely dazzling to yeah, these new train right. stations. Right. So is that not possible that they could move to sort of Keynesianism with Chinese characteristics in the next five to ten years and that could 
be the next stage of crisis management, or is that just not well, plausible with the but, kinds of deficits we've but, got? But Keynesianism uh, after World War II very much had Chinese characteristics in terms of infrastructure investment. When I talk about the interstate highway system in the United States, I talk about the building of the U.S. suburbs. I talk about the huge kind of uh, revitalization, you know, urban renewal projects and so on in the United States. So it's always been infrastructurally oriented. And of course, in the United States, we have a division. Uh, Obama wanted to go for the infrastructure projects. He's been saying, well, there's a vast need for new infrastructure projects, and not only new ones, but renewal of old infrastructure projects. I mean, about half of the bridges in the United States are actually unworthy. And, and mm. you know, we've seen bridge collapses and things like that. And Obama said, look, we should go out there and, and actually revive the economy with these infrastructure projects. So I think that many people would say that the, the, the demand side should always be led by major infrastructure structure mm. projects no matter when when it is so yeah and i think that uh, what then happens is that the, the the demand side is led in this the other way of course which the demand side was led after world war ii was uh, through the military industrial complex and the spending on arms and 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 and, and, and also uh, and that sort of thing so yeah but but on, when i say demand side it's not necessarily about final consumption it's about production of i mean it's, it's possible to have a keynesian sort of response whilst also having sort of depressing workers' wages here in the UK, right? I mean, that's a possible sort of say, we're going to invest in infrastructure, high-speed rail, you know, ultra-quick broadband, but also we're going to make sure that labour unit costs go down. I mean, that's a, that, that to me seems like the kind of the sort of political sum and bonum right now for the Conservative Party, actually. Yeah, they can try that, but that in itself uh, gets you into contradiction because uh, if you debt finance uh, the infrastructure projects, which you have to do, uh, then at some point or rather, you've got to have growth to pay, put off the debt, you know, pay off the debt. And if you haven't got the growth, then you're in you're in trouble with deficit, you know, yeah. state budget deficits. And of course, we see some of that kind of kind of, kind of problem. So the so so actually, really, what you want to do is you want to do the infrastructure projects, but which does employ a lot of people. And actually, does filter demand into wage wage demands, okay. yep. and that way, so a, a balanced growth, which which occurred in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States, is 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 the way to go with the Keynesian project. And what we have is these peculiar hybrid attempts, like you're talking about Osborne infrastructure projects, but depress wages and cut back on state state budget so in a, in a sense you you take away what you what you the, the the growth that you've generated you actually then diminish by 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 the other house so it's mm -hmm. a crazy stupid system but yep. uh, uh you know that's typical of uh, some of the conservative politics that's around these days this this question of growth i think is actually a, a good point to to move to those i mean at the end of the book you outline three dangerous contradictions. You make very clear not to say fatal contradictions. I think this is perhaps the first point to make, right, which is, is, is your insistence uh, on, on refusing to read Marx in this sort of uh, teleologist of capital. Uh, mechanical you know, kind yeah. of breakdown yeah. way, yeah. Um, so I, the, the three that you outline are uh, uh, endless compounding growth, yeah. um, ecological disaster, uh, and universal alienation. Uh, and I, I think I'm actually just going to read out a short chunk from the, the preface to that section because I think it compounds some of the urgency of that. Which is the, these three, the three contradictions I focus on here 
are most dangerous in the immediate present, not only for the ability of the economic engine of capitalism to continue to function, but also for the reproduction of human life under even minimally reasonable conditions. One of them, but just one of them, is potentially fatal. But it will turn out so only if a revolutionary movement arises to change the evolutionary path that the endless accumulation of capital dictates. Whether or not such a revolutionary spirit crystallises out to force radical changes in the way in which we live is not given in the stars. It depends entirely on human volition. Uh, A first step to exercising that volition is to become conscious and fully aware of the nature of the present dangers and the choices that we face. I wonder if you could say a bit about, because I think this is the the, the one contradiction that is is not universally understood and is not part of the material uh, of everyday experience. So, for instance, alienation is something comprehensible. Uh, Ecological disaster is at least in the headlines, if not necessarily visible in the everyday life. The question of endless compounding growth is not one, I think, that, that many of our listeners will necessarily be familiar with in, in, in its details. Uh, and I think it's really, really crucial to understand what you're doing in the book. It's, uh, it's been very interesting to me that uh, when you talk about uh, compound growth, people <clears throat> often shrug their shoulders and really don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, compound growth is, uh, leads into exponential growth, but then people don't understand exponential growth either. It's simply that when I, when I put money in a bank, uh, at, uh, say I put $100 in at 5%, at the end of the year I have $105, and then I have 5% on $105, which you know, at the end of the year gives me, you know, sort of $107, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and what happens with compound growth is that it goes very slowly upwards, and then it starts to depart, if you like, and then it becomes very, very rapid. Uh, some people, I think, uh, I, I don't think it happens so much in this country, but uh, but paying off a mortgage does it in the reverse kind of way, that you start off the first few years and you make very little kind of uh, inroads into the, the capital, but then as you go on, you make more and more, and in the last few years, it kind of usually... Uh, collapses very, very, very fast. So compound growth is is something which is uh, very important to understand, and it's important to understand that capital has to grow at a compound rate. Historically, it's grown at a compound rate of around 2.25% per year since around 1800, 1820, something like that, if we can believe some of the figures that have been generated on this. Um, and uh, But what that means is we've got to start thinking about compounding growth going on forward on the basis of what we've got now. And what we've got now, of course, is rather huge. I mean, we're talking about a tremendous kind of industrialization and urbanization that's occurred in China, a lot of uh, urbanization and industrialization in Southeast Asia and South Asia, and, of course, Latin America as well, including and then, of course, uh, what's going on in North America and Europe. And we're talking about a, a project which was absolutely huge. And if you think about what a city looked like in 1970, if you're old enough or you can get the data to just go back and look at what it was looked like in 1970 and look at what it looks like now and then kind of say, imagine the expansion of urbanization, just to take that dimension, uh, sort of uh, four or ten times as great as has occurred over the last 30, 40 years. What kind of future are we looking at? And and uh, it becomes less and less possible to accommodate that 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 growth. And I think that part of the reason why capital is more and more invested, not in production and and creating, but in in asset control, 
land control and intellectual property rights control, all those kinds of things, and has more and more moved to extracting rents rather than making profit on producing things. The fact that we've seen some of that going on over the last 30 years is a sign that we've got to the end, if you like, of compound growth. Uh, which is going to absorb, uh, uh, if you like, the, the 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 capital that needs to be needs to be invested. So this compounding growth is something which is uh, in the shadows. And when you ask people about it, I remember last time in when the other book I wrote, and I mentioned this, and I mentioned it to one of the some of the journalists at one of into, you know, one of the big newspapers, and they all kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, you know, what's that got to do with anything? And so I think there's a general kind of uh, ignorance about it, but then also an indifference to it. And I think this is, however, a very critical uh, consideration. And and therefore, we have to think about the, the development of a, a kind of society which is not about growth, but continues to be about human development. And that seems to me to be the big dilemma. How, how do we stabilize growth and at the same time liberate human capacities and powers so that people can develop intellectually, develop uh, their, their skills, their, uh, their creativity and, and, and the like? How, do, how can we actually liberate human development in all kinds of myriad ways at the same time as we say, but we don't want physical growth of the sort that capital has produced over the last 300 years because it's not going to be able to do that for the next mm-hmm. 300 years. But how do, how do, how do you say this to <clears throat> holders of public office or people that you know are broadly bought into the ideology of growth? Because I mean, it, because it's so irrational. Because you know, it, I mean, I, I, it's difficult to make a rational argument to someone who's appealing to claims that are just so clearly unscientific. The idea that there will be you know eternal growth, compound growth of two to three percent into perpetuity. There's an article I read in a, uh, one of the one of the publications I have the utmost respect for, although the gentleman who wrote it. That's not necessarily the case. You know, and he's saying economies always you know they always come back. You know, what the hell are you talking about? They always come back. So how do you deal with that level of sort of ideological uh, foreclosure of possibilities beyond well, it's, the status quo? It, it's very, it's, it's extremely difficult. I mean, most most politicians know that if they haven't got the economy moving back on a 3% growth path, they're going to lose the election. Hmm. I mean, every American president, sitting president, uh, knows that, that their re-election prospects depend upon what the... And the statistical correlation between losing the election and, and low growth is very, very strong. So every politician is going to come along and try to manage situations so you get back onto a 3% growth path. Not necessarily this year, but certainly at the point when you're going to be re-elected. Hmm. So, so, yeah, uh, the political process operates on a time horizon of... Uh, you know, four-year cycles or five-year cycles or whatever, and uh, that—that's—that's that's all the politicians concerned about. Uh, but if you kind of say, "Well, how does this look when you start to think about twenty-five years of this?" Uh, obviously, no politician is going to say, I'm actually thinking about 25 years in the future. So, But this is where the education of the population starts to become absolutely critical. That people's experience of, uh, of, of, of zero growth right now is very bad uh, because zero growth means that they are doing very badly. Uh, even though some people are doing very well. So what we have to do is to start to educate uh, uh, people into the dangers 
of compounding, compound, you know, compounding growth. And eventually, we have to start to talk about a political system that is not so growth-oriented. And there are, you know, there have been political movements and political parties that have sought to do this. I mean, amongst the environmentalists, for example, and the Greens, you'll find actually some rhetoric along the lines that we've just got to get off this growth bandwagon and start to think about doing something which is, in their language, more sustainable in relationship to uh, the environment. And some of that means starting to think about is a zero growth uh, economy uh, possible. My argument is a zero growth in, uh, economy is incompatible with capitalism. So we need some other form of production and some other way of, 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 of negotiating uh, the, the, the creation of wealth and the creation of, uh, of uh, human opportunities. We've got to find some other way to do it other than that which is given to us by the logic of this uh, system which has been operating for the last 300 years. I mean, that, that default of assuming that growth also is contemporaneous with real rising <coughs> wages increasing living standards I mean obviously that 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 reference comes from the historical memory I suppose of sort of the post-war period 40 let's say 47 to, right, to the mid 1970s right. right but right now in the UK towards the end of last year and beginning of this year we're seeing the highest growth of any sort of G7 economy and that's being accompanied by record numbers of people in this country going onto the labor market actually in terms of employment figures we're doing better than the US for the first time in living memory the UK is doing astonishingly right. well so at the moment it looks like growth means declining wages increased precarity um, and you know, essentially misery. That's what growth yes. now means, misery. Right. Whereas in most people's minds, it sort of means right. I get a Jaguar E-type and I can buy a house for the first time and I get you know, a foreign holiday for the first time. I've got a 1960s idyll of what growth meant. So uh, how, how quickly can that shift, do you think, where people actually associate growth with misery? Because look, Shah's Iran, 1979, that was a high-growth economy too. Right. And right. that wasn't a particularly stable regime, was it? You know? No. Well, uh, you, what, you, what you find is uh, a very interesting uh, situation. I always remember um, I was in Brazil in the, the sort of late, uh, uh, well, in early 1970s. And uh, the president of Brazil gave this sort of speech in which he said, you know, we have the following problem. Uh, uh, Brazil is doing very well, but the people are doing very badly. <laughs> And and I, I recently was reminded of this because we had a debate in New York about the consequences of the Bloomberg administration in New York and everything, and uh, and all the indications are that New York has done very well. But then you kind of look at it and you say, but uh, the situation, according to the tax returns, is that the top 1% in New York earned on average $3.57 million in 2012. Uh, whereas 50% uh, of the population is trying to get by on less than $30,000 a year. This level, I mean, so, you know, you have a situation where the city is doing very well, uh, but uh, the people are doing very badly. And I think we should be you know, more, much more concerned with how the people are doing. And what you're saying is, yeah, we, we've got good growth right now. Uh, the stock market in the United States now is as high as it's ever been. It's, uh, you know, even they're beginning to worry about there's another stock market bubble going on, uh, mainly, of course, because you've been doing, the, you know, the Federal Reserve has been creating money like crazy and pumping it into the economy, but it's not gone into into actually investment in, in real things. It's gone into people buying assets, buying stocks and shares, pushing the stock market up. So so the stock market's doing fine and, and, and that, so you could kind of say, you know, by certain dimensions, capital is doing very well right now. 
and we, we can say that uh, you know the, uh, the economy is doing very well, but on the other hand, the people are doing very badly. And I think it's that disjuncture that, that becomes, uh, I think, uh, something that we really should be paying much more political attention to because the media take over the fact that, oh, growth has come back. Oh, yes, we're back. You know, We've got a better employment situation now than the United States. We're doing well yeah. you know, and everything is competitive and we're, we're doing fine. But the people are doing very badly. And and so, you know, then people sit there and, and then they believe it's their fault they're doing very badly because there's all that growth out there and why didn't they, you know, maybe get their Jaguar and <laughs> so it's this is a problem. So there is this this figure, and it's interesting you're talking about education earlier, this figure that crops up in a couple of places in the book, which is the figure of the self educated worker. Um, who you mentioned was always sort of the thorn in the side of yes, know, right. politicians and leaders, yeah. and and it's really it is it's striking to me because only if you do sort of historical work and you look at the history of the twentieth century, there were organs and institutions of self education, right, or, or of mutual education among sort of the working class, the radicalized working class. These are institutions that no longer exist. Um, you know, access to education is ever more sort of predicated um, <laughs> on on uh, financial wealth. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, it, it strikes me that, that, that this question, this question of education, is really, really open and, and crucial one. And again, I mean, you, you've been speaking about sort of the, the failures of the academy. Uh, my question is, like, where do we go with, with that stuff? I mean, because it, it seems to me, even, even if we refuse kind of nostalgia for the organs of the 20th century, because they were as you know, useless and oppressive in many ways as they were you know, useful, um, where do we go now to, to make that, that education a possibility? I think the, you know, one of the things uh, I always think of on this kind of question is a, is a great line in uh, Dickens' book, uh, Dombey and Son, where he says he's all in favor of, uh, uh, you know, education of, uh, uh, you know, public education of the poor, provided it teaches the people their place. And, and so formal education can sometimes be okay. But when I think about, for instance, the way I learned Marx, I had to teach myself. Mm. And I think when you teach yourself something and find yourself teaching others something that, you know, you have learned by teaching yourself, you do it in a completely different way. And uh, one of the things I've been very pleased about from doing the Marx lectures online is I find more and more people who've been educating themselves and teaching themselves about Marx from that source. And once they get it, they get it. They get it in a way that in a formal education, it goes in one ear and goes out the other, and they get their grade, which is an A, and then they go into the job market and they have all A's, and they really don't know much, but they, you know, that sort of thing. But self-educated people, I think, are, are always, always, and always have been from early days, the, the big thorn in the side yeah. of political power. It's, it's, and the more we can go self-education and, and I, I, listeners out there I'd say there's lots of good reading groups around just get a group of eight or ten of you around and teach yourself about Marx by using the website mm. and, and and that this is this is the way to do it yeah. always the crisis here and I think it's a crisis that's, 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 that's 
certainly exaggerated since uh, you know, <coughs> since the eighties. Uh, it's precisely that question of free time, right, and, and the way in which like the, the notion of free time or the ability to to even you know refuse uh, like for a certain period of the day to do anything except something directed towards this kind of education that gets narrower and narrower and narrower. Yeah. And so I guess like, I, I suppose one of the political stratagems at the moment, and it resonates with with some of the program you, you lay out at the end of the book, is is, is precisely to reclaim the ability to to slow down life yes. uh, and and to reclaim that 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 notion of free time not brokered uh, through yes. uh, through capitalist relations. Now, I always think this is one of the one of the big contradictions. You know, most of the technological change we have is about being time saving. So theoretically, you would think we would have more and more time, which would be free time, to do whatever we want. Actually, if you look at people's daily lives, and I would include myself in this, you find yourself so bogged down that you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you have this and that, that the amount of free time becomes less and less. And I sometimes think when I'm in a conspiratorial mode that the capitalists have constructed an economy to make absolutely sure that I don't have enough time, free time to go educate myself about this, that or anything else. But you really do find this also even about people who are unemployed. I mean, one of the things that I found in Baltimore talking with people who are unemployed, this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's very time-consuming being unemployed, extremely time-consuming. I mean, it really, you know, you've got to go to the welfare office and you've got to go here and you've got to go there. And there's, there's, I mean, in other words, this idea that, that somehow or other there's, there's, there's a lot of free time around which is not being used creatively is uh, something we, we have to work on hard to actually create those spaces where we can... Uh, actually educate ourselves around uh, ideas we want to investigate. If there's, a, there's a great book, um, the Intellectual History of the English Working Class, Cumber, who wrote it. Um, uh, I, it's a fantastic book, right? And it talks about how weavers, 19, early 19th century weavers, would read up to five hours a day. Yeah, this is the uh, this is Edward Thompson, E.P. Thompson. It's not E.P. Thompson, it's no, not it's, Thompson. no, no, no. Oh, it's uh, uh, another chap. So he's, and, and then there's another, he's got this table of the Reader's Digest, um, and it's the sort of the 20 most read books of working men's clubs um, uh, towards the end of the century, I think. And you've got number one, Thomas Carlyle, Sartre yes. Restatus. You know, and then of course there's a lot of things like the, yeah, John Bunyan and this. Like, I mean, it's not stuff I'm personally fond of, but you know, it's really, really impressive the amount of literature these people are reading, and actually also the, the sort of the real the level of the literature they're reading, and this assumption that the kind of the working class have always been sort of um, hapless and incapable of auto autodidactism is just completely misplaced. So, in light of that, I mean, that has a practical bent. You're saying people should educate themselves, and I think this book, very much to me, I might be wrong, has more of a practical bent than some of your previous work. I mean, it's you know, people talk about Buzzfeed, you know, Buzzfeed, this new yeah. it's like lists. Yeah. I mean, this is like Buzzfeed, right? You know, it's now it's now kind of like an offline Buzzfeed article, but it's massive. Um, so, I mean, that to me. Just the form, as well as the content, um, sort of tells me that you've got a real sort of practical bent going on here. So we've got, what, 10 minutes left? Yeah, you're listening to Navarra FM and Resonance 24.4 FM. We're with David Harvey, Professor David Harvey. Absolutely, you know, a legend of our time. So happy to have him on. We've got 10 minutes left. Some practical questions, I guess. So, I mean, you uh, saw Occupy in the US in 2011 uh, for its, you know, for better or worse, for its failings and for its successes. Uh, you said to me in a video interview, which will also be available on the website, that it at least created a space where people could discuss their problems and they weren't personalising grievances, they saw they were political grievances. 
What I do worry about is, and you, there are some pops in the book about against anarchists and autonomists, although constructive ones, and I actually agree with most of them, is that too frequently the people with the best analysis, the best politics, are talking about means. All the time they're talking about means. We need to create this space, we need to facilitate this discussion, we need to start that conversation. But they never talk about ends. They never talk about demands, right? So the great quote about there's a, there's a, a chap who was asked about what is chartism? I can't remember, it was an everyday guy in the mid-19th century. What is chartism? He said it was, uh, I think it was a three-hour working day, you know, five pints and a lamb dinner, right? And that, you know, people are like, wow, that's political, you know, fantastic, brilliant, where do I sign up? But it seems to me that nobody's talking about those ends anymore, they're just talking about means. So why is that? And Because I mean, that seems to me like a real limit to the you know, political possibilities, which, given the nature of advanced late capitalism, are pretty amazing what we could do, right, with this civilization. Why is there such a limit with, what, you know, that imagination? Uh, I think uh, partly there's been a disillusionment with uh, utopian thinking. <clears throat> uh, of course, Marx was to some degree anti-utopian <clears throat> and uh, I think uh, um, there's a even Marxist strain which is, quote, scientific and anti-humanist uh, and anti-utopian. <clears throat> so I, I would want to uh, revive some sort of measured utopianism. Mm. Uh, I did try in one of my books to to write out a utopian sketch. Uh, <clears throat> it has a, had an interesting impact. Nobody talks about it in the English speaking world. In Which Latin book is this for? Uh, it's Spaces of Hope. Yep. Uh, I go to Latin America and everybody wants to talk about it. It's kind of fantastic, actually. <laughs> I get down there and people kind of say, oh, this is a great thing. Yeah, we did a lot with that. I mean, people will say, oh, I took it into my class and I got uh, everybody talking about it and it was great. So so um, it's, very, it's very strange. I think that in the English-speaking world, there's a... I don't. I don't know quite what it is. It, I think it's a twofold thing. First, <clears throat> if you talk utopianism at all, uh, you get into a kind of notion. Well, you're talking about stuff that doesn't work and can't work. And in fact, if anything, to the degree it gets implemented, it ends up in uh, I don't know Ebenezer Howard new towns, and we know, and, or Le Corbusier's uh, estates, and so this is all disastrous, and we don't need. We don't need. Uh, as one architect said to me, I hear the word utopia and I reach for my gun. And, and, and uh, so there's this kind of, uh, uh, this kind of antagonism. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's, that, that's a pity, but uh, that's maybe just the sort of pragmatic uh, English kind of empiricist tradition that is very uncomfortable with utopian ideas, even though there's some fantastic utopian thinkers, Robert Owen and, of course, Morris and, 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 and so on. So there's that. I think the, uh, the other thing is that uh, it's actually very difficult right now to keep pace with some of the possibilities that exist within particularly the, the, the new technologies. And there is a. I, I find myself confused as to how to understand all the possibilities that exist uh, with the internet, with peer-to-peer uh, -peer computing, uh, with uh, the kind of uh, uh, 
community construction that can occur through the internet, which is picked up sometimes by, of course, by the anarchists and, and the autonomist uh, strain. And and while I'm, I'm critical of some of the things they do, I think the the speed with which they've picked up uh, that uh, is is important. So I think to the degree that we're not we're not sure exactly what the potentiality is. And to degree that the potentialities, as I mentioned in the book, are changing dramatically, that uh, uh, computer capacity is doubling every two years, and mm. we're now able to do things with computers that were unthinkable just, you know, uh, 10 years ago. So what the future might look like becomes harder to, to, to think through. Uh, you find yourself proposing things as as I did when when I was working on the Spaces of Hope utopian sketch uh, many of which are now outdated simply by the advances of, uh, of, of of technology and so this I think means that there's an unstable kind of set of possibilities and that that, that I think uh, means there's a lot of question marks a lot of questions that I think it's going to be very hard to answer I just wanted to praise, and we don't have much time, a couple of minutes, um, <clears throat> to praise the, 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 the last chapter of that book, actually, which is, which is very much about this, this revolutionary humanism, uh, right? one that, that confronts the question of violence openly, um, but, but which also says that, that actually that, that it's not enough to be sort of objectively right, that there does have to be some sort of uh, worth put upon you know, that, that question of ends, that question of human yes. flourishing. Yes. Uh, and I wonder if we can, we can round up with, with like, saying a bit about that, uh, and particularly the, the way it sort of leaps over that sort of strange outer Syrian anti-humanism that's been so dominant on the left for so long. I'm, I'm yeah, I... I I think I've always uh, leaned to the sort of humanist side of uh, Marx, um, which is the belief that uh, we can, through conscious action, actually change the world for the better and change ourselves for the better. That it, and, that, and recognizing that it's not simply about uh, making the world a different place, but it's about making ourselves different people. And and I've I've always been on that uh, on on that side of uh, things. Uh, what this what this means is that uh, we have to collectively find a way uh, to start to to work together uh, to actually redefine what the evolutionary what our evolutionary path is, but also the evolutionary path in general, because we are a very significant evolutionary agent in terms of what's happening biologically on the planet, ecologically on the planet, and we have to make some decisions which are quite uh, serious decisions about what kind of planet we want to live on and, and why we want it this way rather than that way. And I think that there's, uh, in, in the midst of all of this, uh, there is a qualitative question. I mean, people say we need to create jobs, but one of the questions I ask is what kind of jobs? Who's getting meaning out of the, the work they're doing these days? How many jobs around are meaningless jobs? And, and why is it that people don't want to go to work? It's because they're, they're in meaningless situations. The same happens with consumption. We're told, you know, there's all sorts of consumer possibilities, but a lot of the time it's very frustrating. You're supposed to satisfy, you know, your desires, needs, wants, but a lot of the time it's very just unsatisfying. 
So, so in many ways, I think we find human capacities and powers are being blocked, and and also uh, the value we might want to create about things gets blocked. And this is also, I think, true of our relation to nature. For example, I end up uh, about that kind of saying, look, it's not simply about uh, you know how much gas or oil is left, and it's not simply about you know climate change. It's also about our, our sensibility to the nature that surrounds us is an aesthetic problem uh, and a value problem uh, as well as it is uh, a sort of technical problem. On that note, thank you so much for joining us, David. David's new book, 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism with Profile Books, will be out soon. If you would like to educate yourself more or at all to begin with, um, David's lectures are online at davidharvey.org. And they are absolutely fabulous. I learned a great deal from them. And also they have an accompanying companion that's out with Verso. I'm not being paid by Verso to say this. It's actually a very, very good book, as is this. Um, so, David, thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you. My name's Aaron Bassani. This is Navarro Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.